Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Criterion Cast. Getting out of the New Year's hurdle, thanks to you guys and to Ryan for jumping in on all that. I'm sorry I couldn't join, but I greatly enjoyed listening back to all your picks, all your predictions, all your speculations, and all your what have you. If uh, listeners out there haven't listened to those episodes, highly encourage you to go back. Uh, some great reflections and thoughts. But we forge on ahead, back into the past, uh, back to another Ingmar Bergman trilogy following up from last year's, maybe it was even the year before, I guess, uh, the series we did on his summer films. Now we're deep into the winter doldrums with his uh, so-called Faith trilogy. Uh, this is episode 197. We'll be beginning, of course, with 1961's Through a Glass Darkly. Uh, joining me to discuss this are last our last Bergman collaborators, uh, David Blakesley. David, hello. Hey, Scott. Good to talk to you again. Uh, Arik Devins. Arik, welcome back. Thank you. So happy to be here. And Trevor Barrett, deep in the snowy, snowy Utah tundra. I'm feeling very depressed tonight. <laughs> Is it snowing there yet? <laughs> oh, it's been snowing uh, quite a bit, but right now there, we're in a little bit of a heat wave, so some of it's actually melting. Whoa, watch oh. out. What is a heat? What qualifies as a heat wave in the winter in Utah? It's been getting up into the mid thirties, maybe even up to forty degrees. It was down in the like the teens and and you know single digits for a while there, but it warmed up again. Yeah, I remember when I got there last year for Sundance. It was like people said it was the first snow of the season, and that was like late January. So I was surprised yeah. that it took taken that long. It had snowed last year, but that was one of the worst winter snows, and that still makes me sick, Scott. I just mad. <laughs> we, I, <laughs> I was yeah, probably was, two minutes away from you, and we yeah, just didn't make it. Story for the listeners: uh, Trevor was going to pick me up from the airport and uh, very thoughtfully drive me to Park City, but then a gigantic snowstorm hit, and he was like twenty minutes away from the airport and couldn't make it. Well, I was uh, closer. Someday. I was closer. Okay, but they well, had closed the roads. Snow time. So, <laughs> yep. Uh, um. No snow and through glass darkly, but they are similarly deserted, uh, as Criterion describes it. Uh, while vacationing on a remote island retreat, a family's fragile ties are tested when daughter Karen, an astonishing Harriet Anderson, discovers her father, Gunnar Bjornstrand, has been using her schizophrenia for his own literary ends. As she drifts in and out of lucidity, Karen's father, her husband, played by Max von Sydow, and her younger brother, played by... Lars Pasgard are unable to prevent her descent into the abyss of mental illness. Winner of the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film, Through a Glass Darkly, the first work in Ingmar Bergman's trilogy on faith and its loss, to be followed, of course, by Winter's Light and the Silence, presents an unflinching vision of a family's near disintegration and tortured psyche, further taunted by the intangibility of God's presence. Uh, aren't we all taunted by the intangibility <laughs> of God's presence? I would say God's presence was very tangible for one person <laughs> in this film. Well, yes, uh, but only for her. <laughs> too tangible, perhaps. Yes, perhaps too <laughs> tangible. Um, I actually saw these films out of order originally. I watched Winter Light first for some reason, and then while I was deep into a very terrible cold one uh, Boston winter, uh, while blowing my nose constantly, I somehow kept up with the subtitles on Through a Glass Darkly, and then I feel like I kept caught up with the silence like years later, so... These films have never quite felt like a trilogy to me, and I'd be interested to talk about that aspect of them with you guys as well. Uh, but this film has floored me from the start and continues to astonish me each time I watch it. Um, interestingly, Bergman is not the biggest fan of this and kind of was down on it in later years, but sometimes uh, popular directors get that way with some of their popular films. But I, I think it really stands up. It's a really perfect melding of kind of his theatrical background with his filmmaking, it's kind of a great end to his 50s period and kind of hints at much of what will come in the 60s without for firmly diving into kind of his more experimental ends. Uh, and yeah, I think a lot of it really is pretty striking and sets the tone for, I think, the trilogy to come in ways that it somewhat falls up, follows up on and in some ways doesn't. Uh, but we'll get into that as it comes. But I'm interested here i'm sure all of you have seen this film before and this was not your first time viewing it uh this we'll was kinda... my first time viewing it this was your first time viewing it. well then we'll start with you ark <laughs> first of all thank you for joining us on this journey into more bergman without knowing what you're getting into uh <laughs> and secondly what did you think i i loved it um i i 
yeah, I I mentioned before uh, to the uh, other guys that I when I knew that we after we talked about doing this eventually, I waited to watch it for the purposes All right. of this the podcasting. Yeah. So um so yeah I've, I haven't watched any of the three so uh, it'll all be first timers for me but um yeah no I was completely captivated I I I think uh, Harriet Anderson oh my goodness what a incredibly difficult role to play and and actually I thought all uh, of the four actors I thought three of them did incredible incredible jobs um uh, I was not a huge fan of her brother uh, I'll be honest about that. Neither was um, Ingmar Bergman. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he ever used him again, right? No. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, but uh, Max von Sydow, of course, as usual, just incredible, and Gunnar Bjornstrand from you know uh, Wild Strawberry. So nice to see him uh, come back, and and uh, and and I I just love him. He's so powerful, and and he kind of uses. He was perfect for the role because it's kind of a similar character in some ways to the character from um, Wild Strawberries. But uh, Harriet Anderson, I mean, this is one of those movies that if she doesn't work, because this movie, in my opinion, and I'm sure we'll dive into it, really hinges on a thread. Like, it could be so ludicrous. Like, this could be the parody of what everyone thinks, like, Bergman is, you know, so easily. Like, some of the dialogue is is so hilariously tortured, but it, you completely buy into it because of the characters. And I think, um, I I mean, I, I, I have a lot to say about the thoughts in the film and i've been reading about sort of where he was coming from and what was going on with him at the time but like uh oh my goodness what a what a treasure yeah this is the i loved it i loved it uh david you are named in this film there's a character named after you yes that's how does that feel i'm always identifying with that guy well (laughs) yeah you know your point about um this is almost like a parody of the prototypical bergman film I, i i wonder if that is kind of why Bergman maybe distanced himself from it because it is the archetypal chamber drama with you know incredibly dramatic uh, almost tortuous dialogues understated but also incredibly profound in what's being said um, you know the Faro Island setting which went on to become kind of a, a, a staple of his 60s output uh, which you know was incredible and, and 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 I think very justified, but at the same time became you know kind of a, a cliche uh, that the people who maybe wanted to take Bergman down a notch could use against him. So I could imagine a little bit of his self consciousness and and also the fact that I think Bergman was revealing a lot of his own inner torments at this time as a as a creative artist who. Uh, undoubtedly must have struggled with his own material. I think you see that in in David's anguish over, you know, writing his novel and recognizing the the hackneyed, you know, phrases and melodrama that he's trying to transcend, and yet he's just stuck in these plot machinations, and and so looking for fresh material, he seeks to exploit his own family, and and it's just that that convoluted. Uh, it, damning self-awareness that you cannot get out of your own skin to create art. You're you're kind of uh, as a vampire sucking the life force out of the people around you for fresh original material, and in the process ruining your relationships, but uh, winning the acclaim that is also just a, such a central driving force for for your own persona, your own ego. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just so fascinating. I, I, I love this film. It, 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 you know, as, as you said, also Scott, it's, it, it just knocks me out every time I watch it because there's a lot in it and scenes that even though I've closely viewed this, this film on numerous occasions, there's, there's fresh bits that strike me anew as if I'm discovering them for the first time, you know, uh, this time was, uh, just this this afternoon, the the dialogue between David and Martin out on the boat, you know. So I mean, we could get into sorting out the details, but my opening take is like, I I watch this film and it's like, well, maybe this is the greatest thing that Bergman ever did, and yet there's so much to to choose from. But uh, an astonishing piece of work that uh, I think really was a a hinge point for for his earlier into his later career. Trevor, will you play the heretic, or are you joining us on this crusade? <laughs> oh no, no, I'm I'm all on board with this one. This is 
so I'm kind of like you. I started with Winter Light. In fact, Winter Light was the first Emar um, Bergman film I ever saw. And then I, I liked you it so Paul much. Schrader. That was Paul Schrader's <laughs> there we first go. Bergman film too. <laughs> I'm in good company. Um, and then I went back to Through a Glass Darkly, and it didn't stick with me quite the same way as Winter Light did, meaning there was a lot going on in it, and I really enjoyed it, but it troubled me. It troubled me in a way because I didn't understand it, and yet I felt it in some strange, deeper sensation. I was pretty young, you know. I think I probably watched it when I was, I don't know, 21, 22, something like that. And I'd never seen anything quite like it. Harriet Anderson's performance of this poor woman and the exploitation of the family, the pain of each of these relationships, you know, each of them among the others uh, is so tangible, but I didn't understand what was going on. And so this probably is the movie, the single movie I've watched the most in my life, but for like movies I watched when I was a child and just had them on repeat. Um, I think I probably have seen this one, you know, 15, 20 times now because I watch it uh, once a year for sure and and, uh, sometimes even more often than that just because I'm always trying to get a little bit further under the surface. But the delight is always, you know, even if I don't understand the mysteries and and all that happens there toward the end, it's just, it's, it's so much about these relationships and three of my all-time favorite actors are in this movie just at at peak performance level. I mean, the the faces that they show, their anguish and their exhaustion and their pain and just their confusion and their, I don't know, their... Their problems with this life, it's so powerful that I could watch each, you know, any of these scenes between those three actors and I'm engaged and fully into it as if I'm watching it for the very, very first time. Well, yeah, each of the actors, those three really play uh, kind of the archetypical roles that Bergman tended to write for them. You know, Harriet Anderson is this kind of wild id, the unease, the impulse, uh, she has this tether to nature and a spiritual realm that none of the other characters kind of are touching. And that is both kind of freeing in a way, but it also is kind of her undoing. You know, you s- see parts of that personality in certainly Summer with Monica, but even Smiles of a Summer Night and uh, A Lesson in Love, where she plays this kind of wild kid. And then uh, Gunnar Brunstrand is so often the neglectful father, you know, he's played many variations of this for Bergman. And I think here the thing that kind of sets it apart is shame and regret he feels over that. You know, usually he's so proper and dutiful um, and kind of in some way seems to reflect Bergman's own feelings towards his father. But I think with this film, you can feel Bergman coming a little closer to that role and finding himself in it. And then Max von Sydow is always this kind of rock and refuge from the storm, yet starts to be marked by sort of weaknesses and vulnerabilities and he you know he sense how much strength it requires for him to continue for the, his characters to continue to play the role they do in other people's lives uh but i think it is worth starting with harriet anderson because <clears throat> as arc said you know if she, if she doesn't work the movie doesn't work and i think ultimately that's kind of where bergman felt as well um he kind of in the book images he kind of p- picks through each performance and takes it down a peg uh, settling with uh, Lars uh, Potsgaard that uh, it's despite the young actor's considerable work that he put into it, uh, he just neither of them could find a way into the character and that it kind of came up with nothing. Uh, but he has, you know, not great things to say about the others as well that I'll get to. But on Harriet Anderson, he says, the miraculous thing is that Harriet Anderson played Karen's part with sonorous musicality. She needed no coercion and went without visible ste- and went without visible steps in and out of her prescribed reality. She portrayed Karen with a clear tone and a touch of genius. Through her presence, the product becomes bearable. She also portrayed fragments of another film that I was going to write but never did, which is very intriguing. Uh, and Anderson herself said that, I've never been as happy as I was then. I was completely happy to play the sick person, to use my negative register and give it all in front of the camera, to scream and rave and play the schizophrenic. At last, I was up and out again among people who embraced me. The more I yelled, the more they embraced me. She had just come from giving birth to her first daughter, and this was... Obviously, the first film she did with Bergman after a considerable absence, the previous film she did was Smiles of a Summer Night, so that was six years away. And with Bergman's pace, that's quite a few years. 
Uh, but she really falls back into the rhythms so well, uh, not just uh, in terms of the kind of pure age she unleashes that I mentioned, but in terms of the character work. You know, there's a lot of kind of particular to, to Karen that sets her apart from just a pure untapped spiritual realm. You know, I, I like the way she kind of continues to play a girlish kind of daughter figure among her brother and father. But she seems to take on kind of matronly qualities uh, next to Martin and seems to want to be more of a strict wife and mother. And then when she's upstairs in the attic or on her own and, you know, the darkness tends to creep in there, she becomes this kind of sexual being. And there's so many dynamic parts to that role that she just completely nails in all the small touches. And it's, yeah, just a, a striking performance. Uh, Arc, you called it out. Is there, I'm sure there's more you want to say about it. So here is your <laughs> platform. Uh, yeah, uh, there's just some roles that I think are on the page just impossible. Uh, I mean, you know, how she, as you just said, she has to be all of these incredibly different things. And the whole movie fails completely, as I said, if we don't believe in, first of all, her psychosis. But also, I mean, some of the stuff she does in this movie is pretty out there, right? I mean, you know, she in some she seduces her brother, right? Um, and uh, and I want to get into that actually because I I have questions about her brother, but um, uh, I think that she just has to, as you said, she she changes between um, different perspectives so quickly, uh, not just between sort of her illness and her what does a criterion call it, her lucid state, but uh, also between, as you said, the roles she's playing with each of the different characters because she does have very different... And, and I kind of... Th this film does that in a couple of different ways anyway because um, it kind of sets up her the duality of her illness and, and not, but also with like so many moments where um, you know something will happen with the father and then the minute he's gone, they'll all comment on it in a way that indicates that it was not what we just saw for them, right? Like the giving of the gifts where they're like, oh, he got us stuff we don't even need. Oh, my God. Or, you know, the play. Oh, did you see how much he hated it, even though at the time he was uh, ebullient about it, about loving the play? Um, and um, uh, similarly, so she, she's got the father does that, too. Like he'll be there with them. And then he goes off to that room and he's kind of got that that uh, I think it was described in one of the supplements as like a Jesus on a cross pose in the window. Um, and so all of the characters, perhaps with the somewhat exception of Max von Sydow, but even him, Martin, the husband, he still has the persona he's with when he's just with the dad versus the persona when he's with the group. So th there's kind of this dynamic nature of, of different uh, personas to use a, uh, obviously another Bergman film title, um, uh, that are kind of going in and out and she, but she has to anchor the whole thing because it's ultimately, of course, her, her schizophrenia that has brought them all together uh, for the film. And I just think that, you know, it's, 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 it's just an incredibly difficult part to do. Like she, she just has to be completely believable in all those different settings. Uh, and I, and I think she really, really is uh, even. Yeah. yeah even and the, it's all, it's, it's all foreshadowed in that early line, you know, when they're coming up out of the sea and, and they're deciding who's going to do which chores, and and Karen is the one who says, "Well, you know," and and it's acknowledged that you know, let's just do what Karen says to preserve our dignity, and and she really is the driver of all of this, even though she's the woman, she's the only woman in this this cast of four. She's the sick one, she's the the weak and vulnerable one, but yet she really is the driver of this whole scenario. Everybody's responding to whatever Karen presents, and I think. I think they all have a sense of ownership over her as well, which just kind of feeds into a vicious circle. I mean, we've talked about David, her father, and how he exploits her illness and their relationship for his own art. But, you know, each of the other two also, they have their desire to be the caretaker or the, the husband, but also, I'm your husband. Uh, why are we not intimate uh, anymore? You know, why am I really just here... Um, to help you through this illness, do you give nothing back to me? You know, there's there's a lot of responsibility I think she feels to each of them uh, because they have expectations that they might try to suggest they're all there for her, but they they do want things from her as well, and it just is it's kind of a a desperate uh, relationship all the all the all the way around. 
Yeah, I think they're all in, they feel entitled, like she owes them almost. Yeah, we're here to take care of your illness. We're dealing with a lot. Can you give nothing back? And yet she gives so much back. And and it's such a, a tough thing to look at because, you know, it may, may, David, I'd actually be very curious as to your experiences mm-hmm. in, in your in your field of work with this because oh, it can well. be such a vicious, ugly thing where you want to help people but you recognize too, you're a person and maybe need some help and some affection or okay. something from it. And so that, that's one reason I like this film so much is that <laughs> the push and pull yeah. and the tug and the, the and and just the sense that none of it's good, none of it's right. It's all kind of unfair and and devastating and harsh and soul crushing in in a way that it is just very sad. Well, yeah, this this whole realm of mental illness uh, of a of a severe and serious sort, uh, you know, uh, especially adult onset, you know, schizophrenia, where a person has lived a relatively normal life and now all of a sudden they're kind of deteriorating, decompensating right before your eyes. I mean, that's just an incredibly tragic thing. So, so let me <laughs> let me do just a little short bit of personal disclosure here. I have a family member who has actually been dealing with schizophrenia all her life, and I definitely want to avoid any exploitive element uh, that <laughs> echoes what was in this film. But as recently as last week, I had we had a very serious. Uh, encounter with uh, uh, adult schizophrenia within, like I say, this close family member, uh, where the reality of of just how devastating this illness is, of of hearing voices, and of not really being fully able to differentiate between this perceived reality and the sort of the common world that most of us all live in, uh, was made very fresh and very real and very apparent to me uh, to the point where uh, this family member is now in a psychiatric hospital and we're working through some of those issues. So it was a very ironic and, and kind of incredible timing to uh, not only not only have that experience in my personal life as I'm getting ready for this podcast, but also to reflect on some of the uh, the religious elements because this this episode, this uh, you know, these sequence of events that we went through, also involved, uh, you know, uh, kind of a, a a God and the devil element, where this this you know this family member was talking about some of the, um, you know, <laughs> the, the theological implications, if you will, of of their of their perception of reality, and my goodness, just really kind of shook me I'll, I'll just have to say so again uh, just for the interest of confidentiality and, and sensitivity to real people I, the insight that this movie has about the, um, the the spiritual ramifications of these types of episodes was was really impressed upon me I, I really feel like Bergman was he was not just you know using uh, religion and and this God talk for some sort of uh, cathartic effect because of the uh, the cultural ramifications or the uh, you know the trends of the times you know the whole you know God is dead uh, you know kind of uh, post-war theological movements that were happening uh, within Europe and and Western culture at that time, uh, but even the whole idea of you know, hearing voices and wondering, is this God talking to me? Is this the devil? Uh, what is this all about? And and the, the, the intense confusion, as well as the, you know, sort of the existential dread and, and perplexity that, uh, that people go through, because these really are very deeply affecting uh, experiences. And, and they, they sort of draw everybody else into this kind of these ultimate questions and profundities of, you know, what's really going on in, in this life that we're we're all living. So I don't know if there's any <laughs> anything you want to you know, react to about that. But yeah, that's just kind of part of my personal experience that made this this viewing of the film especially impactful. Well, it does get into an element I wanted to discuss about the film, which is the extent to which uh, God exists in it. Because I mm-hmm. think you know, in some previous Bergman films, there's definitely a very clear 
existence of God or at least some kind of spiritual realm. And then in later films, I think very clearly not. Uh, but this, I think, very much toes the line where it could be either way, that it could be that she, it's purely an illness or it could be that she's glimpsing some realm through that illness or that glimpse has caused her the illness. The way he toes the line is so fascinating and I think uh, gets at much of what's so effective about the film. I do think this, for me, is the film where he suggests that it is all insanity, you know, the religion, that for for each of these characters, the things they want in life, the relationships they have, their perception of of all of this, their perception of love. I think in this film, Bergman is, is starting to suggest that it all, you know, kind of dissolves into a haze of gray. You know, the, the through a glass darkly, it's, it's that way because that's the way it is. He doesn't talk about the part, the, the light, you know, and, and being able to see yourself clearly at the end. I think it's a, it's a deliberate um, title to suggest that that's the part and it ends with an illusion of clarity. Um, you know, Minus is still confused about his father at the end. He may have gotten something he thought he wanted, but there's that, that's certainly not an open door to, to a brighter future. That's up, open up to more disappointment and to more disillusionment. Um, Karin is, is, is going off and the, you know, the arrival of God is, is the arrival of something to help her per, persist in her illusion and and then you have her husband who you know what, what's he to do at this point um he's been he's been uh, you know we think and and i believe very faithful and trying to do the right thing and and look where it's gotten him i i just feel like this film is one where the spider god appears and bergman is is really trying to and maybe at the time, maybe I don't know, you know, his personal history and when he himself started to say, you know, what, I'm done with the struggle of trying to figure this thing out. But I do think this is one of the films where he starts to to say, I don't think it's there. I I don't think it's there. I wish maybe maybe even that's a, a, a problem, you know, the wish that there is something more um, and we can someday see clearly. Yeah, I think my my understanding is that you know David's affirmation that that God is love and and it's in our caring for each other that God is made real. I think what I understand is that Bergman sort of meant that as sort of a a statement to sort of hang your hat on that that he was trying to you know maybe put in David's mouth you know words that could give him something sort of tangible to 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 hang on to and yet there's also sort of a hollowness to that rhetoric. It's it's another manifestation of David's, uh, you know, verbal agility, his his skill with with language and with uh, changing the subject when things get a little bit too close to the heart there. Uh, and so he gives his son uh, a, f- a few little bumper sticker slogans there to to suffice for this lack of you know earnest communication, which maybe at this point he's just completely incapable of because again. He's so self-conscious of everything he says that even when he tries to communicate his heartfelt truth and emotions, he's also aware of the artifice of those very expressions, and he just cannot get down to what's really real. And that, and that's that is in some ways, in in many ways, I think the the you know overarching dilemma of of uh, you know the kind of Western European and and postmodern. Uh, culture that that we all inhabit is like how do we get past this awareness that what we say and express is kind of a crafted cultivated uh, semantic gesture or game versus what's (laughs) deep down how how we're sincerely feeling how can we recapture sincerity uh, once we become aware of you know how we how we sort of manipulate not only uh, the emotions of others around us, but even our own feelings. So my, my understanding, historically speaking, is that when Bergman wrote the film, he meant those words to sound, to be his actual theory of what he thought mm-hmm. at that time. But by the time he filmed the film, he, he had decided <laughs> that it was uh, not yes. believable. <laughs> and so uh, I think you see the tension in that scene between the words that he wrote and the feelings he was feeling at the time. And then I don't know when he... A titled movie, maybe Scott knows that, but I, I, I do think that you brought up a really uh, fascinating point about 
um, the the sort of larger zeitgeist context or whatever that the film exists in, which is sort of this uh, post, uh, as you point out, post Nietzsche, uh, you know, God is dead, he remains dead, we have killed him sort of reality. And the idea of like, okay, so what, you know, uh, people, people have often misunderstood Nietzsche there who was not suggesting that this was a good thing. Um, but more saying like, what do we do now for easy answers that we, we used to have a, a sort of go to for, for problems that we had or for a meaning of life or for, um, a way to deal to, with pain. Yeah. Just something to, to sort of guide us. And we didn't, you know, if you need, uh, uh, I, I heard an analogy that I thought was really good, which is that every culture needs to solve the same problems and they solve them in whatever way makes sense. So if you need to carry heavy things, some people used animals cause that's what was nearby. Some people used, uh, you know, logs, some people used mass labor or whatever, but you find a way to carry the heavy thing. And one of the things we all had to solve was, was this, uh, question is the meaning of life. And if you have religion, uh, it's a pretty easier, it's an easier one to solve. Cause you just say, okay, that's done. Did that, took care of it. And in a post sort of believe in, in the Nietzsche, Nietzsche idea of like, how can you believe it's, it's impossible in the modern world to so facilely and easily believe in, in a supernatural being because of science and all this stuff. And so even if you do believe, if, even if ultimately you do find faith, it has to be more faith unless, you know, it's not as easy. So um, how do we reconcile with that? And what does that do for humanity and, and all this kind of thing? And I think that uh, Bergman, you know, is like the classic, you know, preacher's son coming out of that Christian tradition and, 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 and doing, going through that crisis of faith. You know, isn't this phil- trilogy often called the absence of faith trilogy? Um, but, or the silence of God, yeah, I mean, which is kind of where it winds up, yeah. But yeah. it's it's wrestling through all those issues, yeah. and and really very very much making it plain, putting it out there, as, uh, but also in a very dramatic, artistically compelling way. You know, he's he's not just navel gazing; he's creating this really fascinating story with uh, with all kinds of family dynamics. I mean, one of the things I just just am so fascinated by is how how quickly they turn from this kind of facile chit chat everything's hunky dory bubbly conversational and then the minute one element changes it just becomes <laughs> gut yeah, gut punching real <laughs> and he's doing and, all this and, in public yeah. he's doing all of yeah. this struggle in, in i mean the you know the, the way to the, the eyes of the world are on him right like this is not he's not often a in a cabin somewhere he's a pretty well-known filmmaker at this point just to follow up on something Ark speculated about, I don't know exactly when he titled it Through a Glass Darkly, but it did start as a film called The Wallpaper. And in the book Images, he kind of reads or republishes extracts from his workbook as he was kind of writing and then eventually going into filming the movie. And it does kind of start in a more religious sense. He His early workbook entries talk a lot about a God speaks to her, you know, a God descends into a human being. There's more of a sense of a spiritual realm. And then further entries in his uh, workbook kind of go more into the illness side of things and kind of uh, drawing it out dramatically there. And then, I, like I said, I'm not sure when the title change came, but it does kind of play into the larger thing we talk about with the ending. And then I think the tension in the film in general between uh god and between the physical realm and that the film attempt to settle in one arena or another is never quite convincing you know the ending is i i agree it's pretty unconvincing or the it's it's shot through a sense of irony you know in in either sense the idea that it ends with a positive affirmation doesn't quite play the way that uh, bergman might have initially designed it to but i think it does play dramatically you know characters further uh engulfed in some kind of delusion you know it kind of proves that you don't need an illness to have a delusion uh people will find it one way or another i want to ask a question about that uh do we think that the weird mood swings of the brother are any kind of indication that he also might be heading towards schizophrenia or is it just that he's a 17 year old kid with some issues because he definitely like also has i mean he spits in his sister's face at one point right like he has kind of dramatic mood swings throughout the film that are not really ever explained i mean i think he's a young man in a bergman film at that Um, (laughs) all of bergman's (laughs) men are uh pretty unstable people and especially especially the young ones yeah yeah there's a contempt of women uh, and yet there's this you know kind of lurid fascination he's looking at his little 
smutty magazine and and yeah he reads as a misogynist <laughs> yeah. right he's a, mm-hmm. a fearful hatred hateful and uh, uh com- compelled by women yeah and maybe maybe he's dealt with some kind of rejection or maybe he's living out in this isolated island you know uh when he really wants to get where the action is i don't know uh this is not exactly the you know the teen culture that would be more you know celebrated and and, and you know, fetishized even in a way in, in the later 1960s but uh, he is kind of that troubled young man for sure well so you know you mentioned that there were a working title of this film was the wallpaper and i actually have the three films by ingmar bergman scripts that were published by grove press back in uh I think around 69, 70 after this, or maybe a little bit earlier than that, maybe 67. But the wallpaper itself was actually featured pretty prominently in, in the script notes in terms of you know the oh, description cool. of the scene there. Yeah, let me see if I can read it real quick. I'll, I'll try to be pretty brief here. Uh, Apart from an old Windsor chair and a little nursery table, this room is void of furniture. The floor, which once consisted of clean scrubbed boards, has been partially ripped up and the floorboards are propped against the wall. What immediately strikes the eye in this room, however, is its wallpaper. Green in color, it is really supposed to represent leaves in various shades, tones and tinges. In some spots, the color has faded completely and the pattern appears only faint and gray. But in the corners and behind the pictures, the foliage is still strong and leafy. In the wall to the right of the window is a narrow door, also covered with wallpaper, above which a patch of damp has exploded and given birth to a laughing moon face with one dead eye, a gaping mouth and a huge potato nose. To the left of the window, over the whole width of one strip, the pattern of leaves has been ripped away, and behind it, a stiff brownish composition with fading golden edges has come into view. So, I mean, that's that's pretty descriptive, but the vividness of that description and the prominence uh, in this you know, fairly short scenario of this wallpaper. I mean, it is visually striking, and it does however, have that sort of uh, hallucinatory, acidic kind of quality to it, where if you are kind of in this altered mental state, all those shapes and textures might sort of leap off the wall at you. Um, it's it's kind of unusually florid, for especially for the austerity of a Bergman film, which tends to be more plain surfaces but i'm just fascinated that 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 wallpaper must have made such such a vivid impression upon bergman that he almost structured a movie around it it's just i don't know a, a, a unique note i didn't know that it had actually even risen to the level of the title of this film at one point this was going to be his first color film, right? Originally, yeah, I was just going to mention that listeners might yeah. be confused that he even mentioned the color green for a black and white film. But yeah, uh, he and Sven Dickvist had planned to shoot this in color and were just disappointed with the results they got from the test. Uh, which you know, I'm kind of, gl- I'm sure it would have been a lovely color film, but it's so striking in black and white that it's impossible to imagine another way. It just feel it feels like a gray film, and it feels yeah. very fitting. The spilled milk just would not be as good in color. <laughs> true, no, it's so true. <laughs> we, one thing good. about the the wallpaper, though, I've always wondered, and I've never, you know, I guess wondered deeply enough, um, how much of that is based on Charlotte Perkin Gil- Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper, that famous short story about a woman who um, is probably in postpartum depression uh, and has been put on bed rest up in her bedroom and... It's, she's telling it from it, it's written from the first person perspective and she imagines a little man uh, behind the yellow wallpaper trying to to kind of pester her and so she you know it's, it's a slow descent into into madness and schizophrenia with her her husband checking in on her periodically and and how much of that played into this it certainly plays into my interpretation of the film as you know, here we are again, four guys talking about a movie by a man, but it feels incredibly feminist at the same time, because again, you have this woman looking for, or you know, thinking of an authority figure, a God coming to her and how much of that is, is at play with her relationships here. And so, you know, that, that story is always in my mind when she's in that room. And I wonder if Bergman, meant that i mean you know i have to i have to imagine there's some connection there it's a pretty famous widely known anthologized story well i can tell you a quick google search suggests you're not the first per- well I, actually in my case duck duck go search but whatever <laughs> suggests that you're not you're not the uh, first person to uh uh to wonder this there is some scholarly uh thought 
uh, on the matter. I don't I don't see any. I couldn't quickly find out if there was any uh, known direct connection. Maybe Scott knows, but I didn't didn't see that. I, I do have a question about the wallpaper as well, though, if, if, if you do have a point to make about that, Scott. Uh, I have many points to make about the wallpaper, but I, I don't know uh, specifically <laughs> if there's a direct connection. So go ahead. Uh, so I just was <laughs> well said. I was just wondering if uh, do, do are we sp- uh, do you think that we're supposed to understand that the spider is actually behind the wallpaper because the door does open at that moment. And I've read some things that say she goes over there and there actually is a actual spider that 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 her psychosis or whatever combines with a physical like is it possible there was an actual spider walking around because it is kind of a torn up room which is really weird by the way that they have this quite nice house and then they suddenly have this one completely dilapidated room that they've done nothing with but uh uh is it are we intended to think that there's a physical spider as well as a a, um uh schizophrenic spider uh, my mind always inserts a spider. Every time I see this movie, I expect to see a spider, um, which is, I think, a great testament to the filmmaking that mm-hmm. the imagination can fill in all these gaps. It's right there on the cover of the box. Yeah, right. <laughs> I know, <laughs> that's why. You made me think about that earlier, and I'm like, oh, man. Like- um, but I, I think either end is just as likely, and I think the fact that he doesn't show a spider is uh, especially striking. And in fact, it kind of adds to the theatricality of the film in general, the fact that we only see these four people, we only see their setting, we don't even see the kind of EMT guys who come in by the helicopter to take Karen away. Uh, it, and there's no spider, as there wouldn't be in a stage setting. So it's kind of a perfect blend of Bergman's stage sensibilities with the filmmaking. Um, but you've definitely touched on uh, a general production design note that I wanted to get to, which is the state of the room that uh, is very much this shut away, dilapidated, kind of rotting place. You know, it's not like the rest of the house is any great find. You know, it's kind of a, definitely an old house and uh, a fixer-upper if they were to try to sell it, for yeah, sure. Yeah, but it's not falling down like that room. Yeah, exactly. But then she goes into that room and it's just like, it feels like it exploded or got sucked away or just like aged thousands of years while the house around it, you know, aged normally. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a great touch in many ways because it's a small house you know everyone seems to have enough space and it's strange that there's this room that's completely ignored but it kind of i think to me anyway reflects the way that they're all trying to ignore karen's illness and trying to proceed and trying to ignore a lot of things that i think about themselves and their family relationships and trying to proceed as though everything's fine while there's this uh emotional core that's rotting away and I think that's also reflected in the ship that uh, Karin and Minus uh, go off to. That is this weird kind of shipwreck thing that nobody, you know, it does. it's not really part of their property as such, but it doesn't really seem to belong to anybody else. And it's just this element that's decaying and rotting and growing in its own kind of organic and meshed with inorganic material. And I really wanted to call out the contributions of production designer P.A. Lundgren, uh, who was... Bergman's most frequent production designer in that he didn't work on most of his films, but he worked more often with Bergman than any other production designer did. You know, he did The Seventh Seal. He did all three of these films that we'll be talking about. He did uh, All These Women, which is insane production design. Uh, The Devil's Eye, which has great production design as well. Uh, And he's just one of Bergman's frequent collaborators who never gets talked about, I feel like, but whose contributions, when I started to kind of go through them, are pretty remarkable and this is kind of a perfect example of that where in many ways it's a minimalist film you know it's four people it's one house that you do have this ship to go to but for the most part the relative demands on them are pretty small but what he does with them from the construction of the house which has this kind of weird boiler kind of emerging from the center of it to especially that room which is you know you read Bergman's description on paper and that's fine but it so perfectly realized when you contrast the two you know it's clear that he and Bergman had a very close collaboration when he could draw out those words into this kind of perfect reality and have it uh, feel like an extension of the characters themselves yeah I think that's a very good point the the rest of the house feels like you know it's it's almost like a little vacation home their summer place where they're getting together and even that's a bit of a a bit of a sham, you know, they're not really coming together. Uh, it all starts to fall apart. These, these things they do to cover it up in that room is just the neglected, just bitter, bad, bad part of it all that they, 
you know, really probably never go to. And, and she probably never would either if it weren't for her hearing voices that lead her there. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's, I, it's an excellent point about the sort of the general set design. And it's something that I think Bergman and, and collaborators did incredibly well. And that, especially for something like a, this is, you know, like a chamber drama, right. Which historically speaking would be, would have been in a very limited set. Right. And it, and it is to a degree, but there's so much in there to, to latch onto that helps reinforce the, uh, the idea of the, of the mental struggles made physical and the, the fact that, yeah, it's completely possible that there's a shipwreck, uh, you know, off the coast. There's one uh, near here that sometimes um, I, I've gone to. But, like, to have it all there and all these things exactly where they are and, and to have this house, it's also possible, you know, they have this house and it's a family house and it's parts of it over time. They haven't needed as much and so they blah, 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 you know, all these kind of things or whatever story you want to construct that all of these things would be there. But the fact that they are kind of all underlines the tension of the story in a really, really phenomenal way. That's really cool. For whatever reason, the illusion of the movie has worked perfectly on me. I have never even once stopped to consider the the wrecked boat as a set and not as something Bergman found and decided to use when he was on his island. Which he might have. But it might have, right. but, but it makes so much more sense. They'd have to to set it up as, you know, a place with cameras and all of that. And it's just, it's never crossed my mind. So yes, it, it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it could have been a combination of the two. But yeah, you do have to at least make allowances for some lighting. I mean, I know some of this worked cheaply and uh, quickly uh, with what he had, but they would have had to make at least some small adjustments. And it's still, you know, you choose what's in frame and what's not, even if you find a house and use it. The production designer still has some work to do there. So I don't know that they constructed it from nothing, but it's still a, a choice, I guess. Well, it's intriguing to speculate as to whether or not Bergman had sort of an experience in settings like this. Like, did he just imagine this out of nothing, or was he exploring the island, found this old shipwreck, found this old semi-dilapidated cottage? I mean, you know, the elements are pretty tough out there, and I can imagine, you know, a, a family of, you know, not, not somewhat limited means, but, you know, you can only kind of preserve and and remodel so much of a of a of a of a building of a structure and if the upstairs is getting ravaged by the the wind and the snow and the 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 rain and the elements uh, you make you make the downstairs comfortable and let the (laughs) let the upstairs go to seed and same with shipwrecks i mean my dad has lived down in the caribbean for years and there are shipwrecks that are you know 300 yards inland from hurricanes that happened 20 years ago just nobody's ever bothered to clean them up because who wants to spend all their money just taking care of that mess you know so so there's there's a there's some touch of reality to all of this that uh in his early explorations of fora he may have said hey this is you know there's something you know compelling about just this this situation that uh you know, provides good grist for a for a drama. Oh, for uh, sure. I didn't mean of, to su- yeah. just that it like wasn't realistic or anything like that. Just no, that no, yeah, he's taking yeah. elements. I think that yeah, mm-hmm. he probably was discovering on the island since this was the first film he shot there and uh, gra- grasping them for drama. Yeah. Well, speaking of drama, what do you guys think about the little play within the play? You know, the little uh, the skit that uh, uh, Minas and, and Karen put together there, the uh, the artistic haunting or the tomb of illusion. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this is at a time when Bergman is doing, you know, he did something like that in the seventh seal where he would have his players do a little show within the show. I, I, I really like that element. And it's it's again, it's 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 kind of part of that unraveling of the of the seemingly, uh, you know, uh, loving, uh, caring family kind of getting their digs in at each other. And this is, this is Minas kind of calling his father out. And you can see in those reaction shots, Gunnar Bjornstrand sort of recognizing the, the barbs that his, uh, his son is throwing his way. And yet at the end, of course, it's all applause and author, author, and haha, this is wonderful. <laughs> I just, again, I just, I, I love the dynamics of, of how, how the emotions flip back and forth so fluidly. And, uh, of course, just the, you know, just this um, presentation of a of a creative family that's uh, gifted with, with wit and intelligence and a sort of a theatrical sensibility. And yet those those very gifts uh, are kind of uh, a, a curse in, in, as well because they're, they're a way of, uh, you know, in, in some ways exposing and vilifying each other. 
yeah, I think there's I think, two. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Scott. I was just going to say, I think what you said uh, exactly draws out what's so fine about the play and fine about Bergman's dramatic sensibility is that you get all this information about the characters that they've taken the time to put on this play because they want to impress their father and in the process can't help but taking digs at their father, either purposely or not. Um, and yeah. so you just get so much from the characters just by the fact of them putting it on. Yeah, I think that the I love the uh, when films do this, when there's like a sort of a smaller version of part of the story, sometimes the whole story, but in this case, really just well, the journey of one character that's like condensed into this other thing inside the thing. And it works on on the literal level and kind of like on, on more of a meta level with in terms of our understanding of that character that the people in the film may or may not have. And it kind of ties into me as well to the conversation that they that the son and the father have the next day. Well, I think where the son is saying like, oh, you know, uh, I've been writing all these plays and, and stuff. And the father's like, oh, really? How, how, what have, how much have you written? And he's like, oh, I've written like 13 plays like, you know, in the last week or something. And then the father, he's like, but, you know, it just flows so easily. I'm sure. Isn't it like that for you? And the dad's like, no, <laughs> you're just you know that he's been, you know, struggling with this um, uh, uh, writer's block. And I forget if at that point or not, I don't think you yet know that he had, you know, uh, um, attempted to kill himself uh, partially over his over the exact issue that that play was was speaking to uh but it, it all kind of comes together it's it's so layered and so so cool uh, it's just little details that that again the audience knows and sometimes the characters know and sometimes they don't and sometimes you're not sure if they know and it, it just works perfectly uh as we take an eye towards wrapping up uh i do have a final question for you guys which is that this is the start of a trilogy i think most of us approaching these films these days are aware of that uh, Criterion certainly up until the just throwing it all in one big box has presented this as part of a trilogy um, so if you were to watch this film for the first time well as I guess Ark did so maybe Ark is the perfect place to start this is the start <laughs> of a trilogy what kind of trilogy do you expect to emerge based on what you've seen here yeah that's that's a very good question uh, I, I I've learned a little bit about what's coming but not a uh, tried to not to learn too much. I know that Bergman himself is w was a little bit less sure that this was a trilogy at some times and a little more sure that it was a trilogy at other times. So that's sort of interesting. Um, I, and I do know that the, the three films kind of are thematically, uh, how they're thematically laid out, that this is sort of, I forget what the exact terms were. It's like a, a something, uh, faith unmasked or confirmation unmasked or something like that. It, it, there were interesting ideas behind the um, three things. But I guess, you know, uh, I'm not really expecting this to be a trilogy in any literal sense because the um, film definitely does not open itself up to any, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think we're getting any of the same characters in the next one. And I don't think that uh, that would even, I don't know where that would even go. Like, Oh, what are we like now we're in the hospital or I don't know, but I'm, I'm sort of more expecting something in the nature of maybe uh Kieślowski's three colors trilogy where the three films explore aspects of some sort of idea and are maybe connected in ways that are not obvious or uh maybe only uh, visible from a distance or or by the people watching the films as opposed to the films themselves or or something like that I, i'm 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 expecting it to be thematically related i guess is what i would say a good vague answer uh david or trevor <laughs> sorry do you have can you divorce uh, your past experiences with the other two films and imagine what uh trilogy might look like just based on this one oh you go first david I, I uh, well i i mean i i think they they kind of are a pairing down to essential elements i think i think bergman was looking at you know sort of the idea of the chamber drama, you know, a, a cast that's in the low single digits, uh, kind of uh, not a whole lot of scene transitions as far as locations uh, or, you know, ex an extended period of time. This the, These stories all take place in a fairly compressed time frame, uh, focusing on sort of the, the inner lives of, of characters who are wrestling with issues of, faith and ultimate meaning and uh, the connection or lack thereof between themselves and the people who are, you know, ostensibly closest to them, the most meaningful relationships in their lives. Um, there's a little bit of, you know, here this is kind of a summer film. Winter Light is a, definitely a winter film. So there's also kind of a little bit of that, you know, seasonal affect. And there's also just those those big issues. I mean, this is dealing with 
you know, mental health, uh, winter light, we'll get into, you know, issues of, uh, you know, big picture politics and, and, you know, war and the imminent end of the world uh, due to, you know, nuclear weaponry and things of that sort. So spoiler alert there, <laughs> I suppose. But, uh, you know, asking those big questions, but also relating them in, in the lives of ordinary people on the small setting. So I think that's that that's the common element. And, and in that sense, you know, this is, these are not terribly different than films like, you know, Persona, or uh, you know some of the other films that were filmed, you know, uh, that that came out later in that decade, uh, The Passion of Anna, uh, Cries and Whispers, even you know Persona and uh, you know Shame Hour of the Wolf. I mean, all of those kind of have some of those common threads. But this does feel like there's a, a turning that's happening here with Bergman as he's reached a sort of an artistic peak with uh, Seventh Seal, Wild Strawberries. And uh, where do you go after after those particular films? Um, this is this is kind of you know exploring those big issues, but also preparing uh, to go in some new directions. Scott, were you looking for more of like a like what do I th- what do we think these characters would do in the next movie? No, I was just curious. Anything that you could imagine if you heard this was the first film in some kind of trilogy, what would you uh, imagine? than other two films would look like. And uh, both of you have answered in uh, unique ways. <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, Trevor, do you have any final thoughts as we uh, start to wrap up? Well, uh, kind of on your, your question there, I, I don't know if I can divorce it. I mean, these these films don't feel like a trilogy to me, and at the same time, they are. You know, they, it, it's hard because they're presented this way to divorce the experience of seeing them and thinking about them in relationship with each other. At the same time, I'm one who doesn't necessarily think you need to watch all of them to to get anything out of, of each individual one. And I'm, I'm not even sure that I would say that these three make a trilogy better than, you know, some of the, the later films, you know, the silence being in, in with the blo- kind of boxed in with the films that came after it, they feel almost more of a piece than, than maybe these three do. And, and maybe you can throw the Virgin spring in here instead. You know, I, I kind of see this as maybe a more, uh, what David said, and I'm not sure this is what David meant for him personally, but as a big transition period and these being the hinge uh, of all of that, you've got, the 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 faithful kind of film not faithful um but films exploring faith leading into this a film in the middle that's really kind of hits that right on the head and then a film called the silence and and i don't you know again i've i've seen them too many times to know what i would have thought they would all mean um but I would think this was just the you know the quintessential Bergman film, the things I've seen people make fun of <laughs> before before I watched them. You know the portentousness, the the gloom, the the Bach, the you know the the black and white, the the sharp objects. I I think I would expect a lot more of of that, and I think I'd be surprised. I think they 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 don't all kind of go in that direction, and this is a great a great film that stands on its own. And, be, you know, we've touched on this before in this episode, but it's a great film because really Bergman's films are about Bergman's life and his own struggles. And this is a film that really digs deep into that. And you can feel it, you know, you can feel it on the screen. He is not being um, pedantic. He is not getting up there to preach to us. He's getting up there to struggle and to cut himself open and bleed. And this is a film where you can feel that and you can feel the pain he feels for others or that he may think others feel um, because of some of his own actions. You can feel just that that sense of, oh, this life is beautiful. And boy, sometimes this life, you know, what can we do with it? And it's just an amazing experience because this is a part of a much larger artistic uh, life and project that um, I don't want to divorce it from, from everything that's come before and everything that comes after it. You know, it just doesn't, it's too, too important, too, too big for, for someone like me. (laughs) So you're saying that Bergman's entire filmography is a trilogy, really? (laughs) Yes. It's a big canopy and this is just one, 
one thread on it, I guess. No, I don't know how you say a 45 ology or whatever it was. But... <laughs> well, you guys have thoroughly taken my fun exercise in all kinds of directions, and it is now twisted, and I will intentionally bring it up again in the next episode. Um, <laughs> Did you have an answer? Did I have an answer? Uh, yeah. I guess my prediction would be that it, there'd be three films that are very theatrical, heavily staged. You know, I think the blocking here is very determined. Uh, so I think it'd be more of that small cast and limited settings, like David said, uh, notes of hope surrounding kind of this deep introspection uh, and kind yeah, of yeah, more yeah. more to do with mental illness, I think, and uh, a reflection of psychosis that's re- represented physically, kind of we, as we talked about with the house. Um, but I do kind of agree with Trevor that I don't know that it kind of fits as a trilogy. And it'll be interesting to see the ways in which uh, we tease that out as it comes along. I do think this kind of works better as a culmination of his 50s work than necessarily a beginning of his 60s. Uh, but, you know, anything to sell Bergman. So if, if a trilogy helps <laughs> sell it, then more power to him. Uh, but we are running out of time. The men in the helicopters have come for us. Uh <laughs> So we'll my door to... is opening. <laughs> exactly. The spider's crawling out. Uh, so up my leg. <laughs> uh, so we'll have to call it a night. Um, and I'll, I'll just tease for the listeners that there's a technical flaw in this transfer that I'll discuss in the next episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> and until then, thank you all for joining me. Uh, thank you all for, at home for listening. Uh, as Trevor said, don't spill the milk. You don't know what kind of terrible psychological turmoil will be unveiled as a result of small mishaps. Uh, Watch out for what's in the attic. And uh, we should all be afraid of spiders, frankly. Uh, So with that, good night.